0: Genesis 3, 1 through 9. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?"
1: Some of you may recall uh, George Scott's portrayal of uh, the General Patton in a 1970s movie, it has tons of Academy Awards behind it, and. Um, In this movie, uh, Patton, who's a colorful character, colorful language, colorful in his career, he's observing a battle that's unfolding in front of him uh, against Erwin Rommel, field marshal, and uh, called the Desert Fox. So finally, this battle is unfolding in a way that uh, Patton appreciates very much. And as he's looking through the field glasses there, he growls, Rommel, you magnificent (laughs) expletive. He says, I read your book. I read your book. Now, as movies do, it takes liberties because the book was actually on infantry and it happened actually years after this time. But what it does capture is that Patton was a voracious reader of military history. There's an old adage, know thy enemy. And this is what he subscribed to. I think the Apostle Paul would agree. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The event being referred to is found in Genesis chapter 3, and it was just read in your hearing. And it is so useful because it is a perfect case study for temptation because it just removes all questions of nature and nurture, because the environment is perfect and the heredity is perfect. So together, let's go back in history to Genesis chapter three. Now, if you're here with us today and you're exploring the faith, you have questions about the faith, you may read about a talking serpent and immediately conclude this is a fable, a legend, or maybe even a myth And we don't really have time to delve into that, but people who spend a lot of time with fables, myths, and legends, like literary people, they read this and they say, "Mm -mm. it is portraying itself as something else. It is being portrayed as primeval history. For instance, a fable always has a moral. This does not. A legend always has a great creature that is slain by some hero. A legend does, but this, this does not. A myth, well, that's a more generic category. But what I would encourage you to do today is this. I want you to look at the world around you. I want you to look at people as you know them and see if this speaks to the origin of evil in a way that is believable. Now, since this is going to be read as history today, It's also a story, and I'd like us to treat it as one. So this is going to be a simple message. We're going to spend a little time in the setting. I want just to give you enough so that you can kind of trace your way through it, just the the most important things. Then we're going to read the story. And I'd like to approach the story just kind of as a tour guide, just reading the story and just say, here, note this, note this. And then I'd like us to take a little bit of time to look at some signs that perhaps we are following the same pattern that happens in this story. So what do you need to know about the setting? The setting is Eden, which is a place that probably means a place of many waters. And as you're reading in in Genesis here, you'll see that it is a place of many water. There are four rivers. Now, two of those rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are in Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. So you could actually trace them on a map. Two of the rivers are not to be found on any map. Could have been they were rearranged through Uh, the flood in the later account it could be that they were canals that were somehow moved but this is a place of many waters but more specifically the setting is a special garden within Eden this is sometimes called the garden of God later in scripture now the significance of this garden is that it was a special place that God arranged for the first man and woman along with the first creation to dwell in safety it should be seen as kind of like if you could imagine a Venn diagram where you have the heavenly realm and the earthly realm overlapping. And that is what this garden is. It is a place that the presence of God could be known where he could, they could enjoy his presence. The ancients that read this would have understood it very much as a kind of temple of the universe, a place where God was in a special way. Now, every temple has its priests, And so we meet our main characters, Adam and Eve. Now, Adam sounds like Hebrew for dirt, because that's what they were made of. God makes the man out of dirt and breathes life into him. God elevates his earth-born creation as the ruling partners in Eden. Now, Psalm chapter 8 speaks of this. It says... That mankind was made a little lower than heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, with dominion over the works of God's hands. Eve was a co-ruler with Adam, one corresponding to him, one without who could not fill the mandate to rule and fill the earth. She is a companion. It says a helper or a companion fit For him and this word fit is very interesting like all through scripture it is it is sometimes translated as before and so it denotes somebody in the presence of somebody face to face to and so together they were going to rule this aspect of the creation now they had the perfect union chapter 2 verse 25 it won't be on the screen summarizes the nature of their relationship in this way and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Now, that's a curious verse when you first read it. That's an interesting summary of everything. But if you think about it, it's really, really beautiful. Could you imagine living with no shame, no self-consciousness, no hiding, no carefully crafted image with which we hide behind, fully known, absolutely emotionally connected, as evidenced by zero self-consciousness. Well, frankly, it's hard to imagine because we are living on the other side. Now, being God's rulers in this paradise had its responsibilities as seen in uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It says this. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Other translations say to work it, and watch it. You know, I think of this being put in this garden to work and watch it as every time I visit Longwood where when you see the absolute stunning creation of God but it's been under the care of skillful men and women to make something that is absolutely breathtaking. It also had not just responsibilities but also limitations as represented by two trees and we see this in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was an ongoing reminder of the presence and the care of God. So he put it there in the garden because we find that God actually would come and go. Remember, this is kind of like the overlap place where he could enjoy their presence in a special way. This tree was there, though, to remind them of his presence and care, and they could eat freely of it, and it was eternal life. Anybody who ate of it would live forever. Now, there was also a representation of, if this was God's presence and care, the other tree, the knowledge of good and evil, this tree was... um, Representing a limitation. In other words, this is something that only God should have. So there's both responsibility and there was limitations. Now, in verse 16 and 17, you can see God's command. And this is going to be important because uh, the serpent takes this and really twists it around later. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the setting. This is paradise. Imagine having a creative, fulfilling job that you enjoy going to every day. Imagining evening walks with God. Imagine a perfect marriage. That's the setting. But let's follow the story carefully. Chapter three, verse one says this, and now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So all of a sudden, you've got this introduction to this new character, the serpent. There really is no introduction to him. Two things are noted about him. Number one, he's more crafty than any other beast. And number two, he was created by the Lord God. Now, the fact that he is created rules out the fact or even the possibility that this is some sort of competing deity against God. No, this is a created being. Something else is noted is that he is crafty. Now, craftiness in the Bible is sometimes good. It's just a kind of wisdom. But normally, it's got a negative connotation to it, and that's the way it is here. He was crafty in the sense of he was intending to deceive now, at this mysterious appearance, it soon becomes really clear that the serpent is a creature that's in rebellion against God, and he wants the man and woman to be in rebellion against God as well. Maybe he resents their role in God's plan. But there's no question that the serpent is, God, is Satan's presence in the garden. So Genesis never explicitly says the serpent is Satan. More likely, the serpent was a creature that was naturally subtle and crafty, kind of like we think of a fox, that Satan was able to use as an instrument um, as an instrument to deceive them. So he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What we see here is that the serpent tweaks chapter two verse 16 to his own. Purposes. And I'd like to put those side by side so we can kind of see. The first thing that he leads off with is God really say, so you should read that as an expression of surprise. As in, did he actually say that? Indeed, did he say that? It's kind of like, did you really just put ketchup on that filet mignon? Like, did you actually do that? It's an expression of surprise, kind of derision. And so already he's questioning God's motivation, Something else you need to note is that he uses the name God, which is used tons in chapter 1 and son in chapter 2, Elohim. However, chapter 2, starting with verse 4, started using a different name for God, and that is the Lord God. The Lord God is God's covenant name, and it's featured really prominently. It emphasizes how personal and intimate God has been in this entire process. And so throughout this whole account, you see God as a potter. He's playing with dirt, as a horticulturalist growing a garden, as a sculptor fashioning Eve, as a person walking in the garden. And the serpent does not want her to think of God in this personal, intimate way, not for a moment. He turns God's freely, you may freely eat of every tree, from every tree you may freely eat, into a negative by adding not, which all of a sudden makes it an absolute prohibition. He omits freely. And in the, in the verse, and I, and I put the verse in the New American Standard because that's a very literal, it does it kind of in the order. So it actually leads off from any tree you may eat, God says, but the serpent takes that and moves it to the end which removes the emphasis on God's liberality. The tone and the emphasis misrepresent the disposition of God, and they are intended to awaken doubt in the woman. Does it work? Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Once again, let's put the verses side by side. It is clear from what we see here, although it sounds like she's doing pretty well, that she she is actually getting to her. For one thing, she removes the words of liberality like every and surely. She replaces the knowledge of good and evil with the tree that's in the midst of the garden. So she replaces the significance of this with a geographic reference. She repeats the impersonal name that the serpent used. So instead of the Lord God, the personal name, she took just God. Then she adds, shall not touch it. Now there's a possibility that this was meant to honor the prohibition. It'd be kind of like building a a hedge around it. It could have been something that Adam told her. But she could have said that. She could have said, and, and Adam also said, but she doesn't say that. Then finally, she removes Shirley from die, removing some of its urgency. Now, I do not want to be hard on Eve. She was not ready for this. She was not ready for the crafty nature of this serpent. It would have blindsided us as well. But what this does show is that the serpent is beginning to get to her. She is mirroring this more restrictive view of God. The next verse is, The serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For the Lord knows, excuse me, when God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here he comes right out and says it, an alternate story, an alternate set of facts. What's interesting about it is that it is full of truths and half-truths and irony. He immediately negates God's facts. God said you would die, you won't die but it kind of has the appearance of truth because later on when they eat of it, they don't immediately drop dead. He asserts that their eyes will be opened. That also is true, just not in the way that they would think. With the result that they will be like God. Now this is ironic because they were already like God. They were in his image, ruling as co-rulers in dominion. What he is doing is distorting the position of God. What he's saying in effect, his entire tone is this, God wants to keep you from happiness. God is envious because it will open your eyes and you'll be independent. God is tyrannical. He is in a power play. He is without love. He also insinuates that Eve is deficient in some way. Your eyes are closed. They have to be opened. You're blind. You're duped. You aren't worth the knowledge, apparently in God's eyes. You're nothing but dirt. He then goes on to say, but if you eat of this, then something's going to happen. So he offers her a bit of salvation here. And the salvation is a fruit, something concrete that she can touch and taste and experience. He says, what you need, Eve, is something, not somebody. After planting doubts about God's disposition toward her and offering a whole other set of effects, the Satan the serpent exits. That's it. Those are his lines. Exit serpent. He has two lines here, but he plays them with devastating effect. But what he leaves her with is her desires. And you can see this in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In these verses, I want to notice three times that she is being charmed by this. It says it looked good to eat, so it was going to taste good. It was pleasant to look at, so it was attractive. It would make one wise. Now, what's the problem here? God had already declared that the tree was good. He had created everything good. He had said it five times in chapter one, it's good, it's good. This is part of creation, wasn't it? The ability for her to notice that the tree was good and beautiful and desirable is something that is very, very human. But the problem is she was lusting over what God forbade. Notice that she looks at the tree and called it good, what God had called off-limits. So she was usurping his prerogative. So already that divine prerogative, that domain where God ruled, she was saying, that's not good that it's off-limits. It's good that I have it. Now, this is just good storytelling because the verbs start coming really, really rapidly. It says, the woman saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. So it, just kind of, it kind of gives you this idea that all of a sudden something's happening very, very quickly here, and, and it is. I want you to note that she is left alone. So God is not walking in the garden right now. The serpent has exited, and what about Adam? He's said to be with her. Now, it is possible that Adam was a bystander, that he listened into this entire conversation, which is a little bit problematic because Paul said that he was not deceived. So his sin came for another reason. I think that it's more likely that after she had eaten, she gave it to her husband to eat after her. In other words, to eat with her. Romans 5.12 notes this, that it's still on Adam's head. It says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread. So who still gets the blame? Adam. So either he was standing there passively or else uh, he just, just without any questions, took the fruit. Verses 7 and 8, here comes the aftermath. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of God among the trees of the garden. I want you to know that the serpent's mixture of truth and lies become really apparent here because, number one, they did not immediately die, and their eyes were opened. What happened is that they began to see each other critically. They began to judge each other's motives and thoughts. They began to scrutinize one another. With the knowledge of good and evil that actually did come upon them, suddenly they felt naked spiritually and exposed, and so they covered their bodies. Something connected broke between their soul and their body, and their first move was to shear off some part of themselves from the sight of others. In other words, to hide. They did also get wisdom, but their wisdom was to weave the first clothing so they could hide. They did have their eyes open because they felt guilt and shame before God as well, having broken his command. So God's intimacy with them was broken such is the story, the signs, how not to repeat history. So having established the setting here, and we follow the story carefully, just kind of a tour, let's think about Paul's concern in 2 Corinthians that I read earlier. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What are some warning signs that you and I may be following the same pattern? We start off, as Adam and Eve did, having dominion. Each of us have been given a realm that we are over. We have relationships, we have jobs, we have many things to do. We have set our hands to good works that God has provided for us. We are ruling in our realm. So we start off with dominion. If things are going well, we're having relationships with other people. We're having good relationships with our coworkers, with our spouses, with our grandchildren, with um, our friends, with people around us, with strangers. We're having good relationships. That is having dominion. We are having creative work to do. We are putting ourselves out there. We are fulfilling what God has to do. But then something happens. Doubt. We can see this in, did God actually say? I wrote a really helpful book by a neurobiologist named Kurt Thompson. And he spoke about this passage in his book called The Anatomy of the Soul. And he points out a little bit about what may have been happening to Eve emotionally. You see, when we are forced to remember something, it always affects us emotionally. So as we have to go back and check for accuracy, there's always a surge of emotion. And sometimes that emotion comes back to us as doubt. As in, you're 50 miles down the road on the way to vacation, and all of a sudden somebody says, did I turn off the oven? And all of a sudden, what does that do to you? You're forced to remember, did I do that first? I did this, and then I did this. Did I ever shut it off? And so you have this surge of emotion that comes with doubt. Well, this is, this is what was happening in Eve's life it all of a sudden puts us in the realm of right versus wrong thinking. Was I remembering that correctly? Is that what God really said? Which that's the realm of doubt. So Satan has very, very skillfully, very skillfully put her by that one question into an emotional distress that doubt followed it. So when she responds, she begins to remember things differently. We saw this, that God began to seem less personal, that he seemed more restrictive, His prohibitions seem more heavy. His laws and his consequences seem less real. This emotional shift happens to us as well. When we are forced to check the accuracy of what we believe, When we're accused or criticized, somebody comes and they accuse us of something. You did this. You were thinking this. And all of a sudden, you're thrown back into like, well, what did I do? And you start doing this, and and doubt comes, and perhaps fear comes at that time. You find yourself revisiting what you know about God. Maybe you're doing the very, very best you can. You're creating something, and somebody comes along, and they criticize you. And so you're going back and you're reconstructing what you could have done, what you should have done. And all of a sudden, you're filled with, with doubt. It may be that you are, are being worn down by prolonged suffering. And all of a sudden, you're asking yourself everything, revisiting everything that you knew about God. Does he love me? Is he really in control? Does he really have my best interests in mind? Did he really forbid this? Which leads to another sign which is a subset of doubt, but it's distinct enough to deserve a look here. Distance. So we see dominion and then distress and doubt. So something comes into your life that rattles you, okay? And all of a sudden you're doubting. Distance. When the serpent says, God knows, I want you to know what he's doing here. The serpent wanted to talk about God. Under no circumstance did he want the woman to talk to God. Remember, God came and went. Eve could have said, oh, I'm not sure. I'll see him this evening. Why don't I ask him then? You know, a mark of danger is when you stop talking to God and you start talking about God. Now, what happens at this point is that you are setting him apart from yourself. And just like the serpent said, God knows, he was setting God apart and saying, hey, let's look at God. This is what God was up to. He was thinking in the mind of God, Now, this is dangerous. There's a reason sometimes that seminaries are derisively called cemeteries, and that's because you have people thinking deeply about God, and so they begin to criticize and analyze and categorize somebody who really can't be. Now, I'm a big fan of theology, but it does actually point to a very distinct danger that happens when you begin thinking about about God rather than to God. In fact, one of the first books I was handed was a book by B.B. Warfield called The Religious Life of Theological Students. And this little pamphlet warned us exactly about that. You're going to read a lot about God, but do not stop being before God and relating to him. Talking about somebody creates distance from them, and it allows you to criticize them. You can look at their motives, and that's exactly what happened next. So after this distance that he puts between us and God... Here comes the disbelief. You won't surely die. Now, by the time the unbelief is made plain, the emotion that we're feeling, the distress of whatever situation has entered into our life, and we're not liking this. We don't like to be in distress. Because what follows after it is fear and doubt. and, And suddenly we feel far from God, and along comes this possibility that God doesn't love us. He has assigned motives in our minds of he's jealous and petty, for he knows. You're sure that there are things that God is holding out from you, that there's a wide world out there of freedom and experience that he doesn't want you to have. This is a very, very dangerous place to be. You may look at what he says are consequences in the word, uh, things that he prohibits of and say like, yeah, we won't surely die. It won't be that bad. That doesn't really apply to me. And you are well on your way to disbelief at that point. This is when your desires kick in. The serpent said, when you eat of it. And so this is when he offered something. So in our distress, often, we, we, we don't like being in distress, do we? And we feel distant from God. We have doubts about His care. We have unbelief. We're asking ourselves all these questions. And then then all of a sudden, something comes along and we cast about looking for some way out. What will make me feel better at this time? And what we settle on is something rather than someone. It may be something good that God calls off limits, it may be something that is sinful that He calls off limits. You may have something good in itself, but it becomes the something that's going to fix your problem. And this is exactly what the Bible calls idolatry. When we make the good the ultimate. When we forget the giver and embrace the gift. This, this happens in, in my life all the time. I would imagine it happens in your life too. I'm uncomfortable. Sometimes we turn to food or comfort. It's called comfort eating or stress eating. Food is a great gift, isn't it? But when we say, like, I'm in distress, and the first thing we don't do is turn to God, we turn to something to stifle it. It could be drink. It could be substances. These are ways that we deal with our distress when there is somebody there who is calling to us. It may be acquiring things of beauty. This is something that is very, very human it's something that God gave us. We are the only, we are the ones who collect things. Animals, I mean, they may like, you know, jays and stuff bring things to their nests, but we admire them for their beauty. So to acquire something is very, very human. But when we turn to collecting or shopping or whatever it is to, to distract ourselves from the distress that we're feeling, then once again, we have put something in place of somebody. There are other ways we do this, through experiences. It could be, hey, I need to go play golf, I need to go um, out, I need to go down to the shore, or whatever it is. These are all good gifts, but once again, they become ultimate. It may be that we live in our mind and we just begin to go back and get lost in our memories. And so we start retooling things so that it, it doesn't look like we did so bad or we become the hero of a story Uh, this is the way that we as fallen humans deal with our distress really it's anything that helps us cope with the uncomfortable feelings that we have well once we get to the place that we say what God has said is not ultimate or something that God has said is evil and we turn around and say no not you this is good once we get to that point we are well on our way to the last part And that's disintegration. They knew they were naked. They sowed fig leaves and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. At this point, it's all about hiding. We hide from God. We hide from each other. We know that we're here when we drive away those who love us. Somebody comes and they try to say, what's wrong? And we put up the wall. Or it could be that we drive them away because we make them the ultimate and put too much on them to bear all of our burdens instead of turning to him. It could be that we shut them off or else we just, like, begin to just, like, go after them. You busy yourself with anything, really anything to keep you from thinking. You give yourselves to lies because we know that when you have a pattern of deception, like, that's what it takes to cover up sin. We're convinced that if anybody knew, it would be over for us. And so we begin to hide. You hide yourself from talking to God. I mean, the last person you want to talk to, even though you know in your mind he knows all things, it's like, I'm not going to talk to him about that. The doubts that entered before now are full-blown, and your faith is even in question. Another message could be dedicated completely to the next verses, which is God's response, which really is full of hope. I wanted to just read them really, really briefly, because I want you to note one thing. In verse 9, and that won't be on the screen, it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And so Adam answers. And then God said, Who told you that you were naked? And then later to the woman, he says, What is this that you have done? I want you to notice that God comes with questions and not accusations. And although he does follow up and he is pressing in, what he is wanting is for his creation to actually engage with him. That is where the hope comes in, when we stop running and we actually start engaging with God. He also gives us a glimpse of his plan in chapter 3, verse 15, just a few verses later. He says that the seed of the woman is going to make war on the serpent. So as you look at this, God starts telling us, how do you you get out of this path? You begin pursuing God because he is pursuing you. I could also point you there for your own reading, uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 18, where you see how God took this one sin and he began to redeem all things. But today... I think it would be time well spent if we would begin to mark in our minds signs that we're being led astray by our own lives. So I wanted you to think about your life and just like, where am I distressed? Where the doubts come in? Where do I start to feel distance from God? Where do things disintegrate? You know, because if you are living with your relationships disintegrating, uh, it is, it's probably clear that you already have been in this path. So, what about you? What about me? Maybe you've identified signs that you're being led astray. Here's what I would ask. Would you also consider that there is an invitation, an opportunity to get off this path of mistrust and take a step toward trusting God? What does that look like? Here are just a few ways. Community. What if the man and the woman... Together had faced the enemy. What if Adam either wasn't passive and he came in and enforced when he saw his his wife was having a hard time. What if she had said, you know what, I'm going to go get Adam. I think we need to talk to you about this. It would have been a very, very different story. It can be that way for us as well. When we feel ourselves somewhere on that path of distress and doubt, get somebody. Bring them in. This is what the body of Christ is all about Bring somebody else in and let them help you face the doubts that you are feeling. The claiming of promises. It would have been a different story if if she had said, or if any of us would say, I know he loves me. I don't know what, you know, you're playing with Satan here. I know you're twisting things around. I know he loves me. I know he gave me everything I need. His restrictions are for my benefit. I know this. And then you quote promises to him. Communion. What if she had said, I know where to find God. Let's bring him into this. You have questions? I'll bring him into this. What if we turned to God and you say, I know where to find him. I find him in his word. I find him in the Holy Spirit. I find him in music. I'm going to turn to him right now. What if they had cast down idols and said, I don't need that charming fruit. I need God. I need somebody. I don't need something. Scripture says, "For if, because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." God's plan is one day to make a new heaven and new earth, where it's not just Eden that is that overlap, but all of it. He is redeeming all things. No longer will it be a tree that brings the presence of God. Already, those who eat of Jesus Christ's teaching, and he is their vine, the Holy Spirit is with us promising the presence of God. But someday he will walk with us in a new heaven and new earth. That is the new Eden. That is what we're heading for. That is our hope. So as we've read the enemy's book, we see his plans. We've also read God's book. Will you step off that path of mistrust today and begin to step toward trusting God? Let's pray. Father, I feel my humanity where I am in this cycle so often. I am indeed a son of the first parents. Lord, I pray that there would be someone here today that would see, if this is them exploring the faith, I just ask that they would say like, yeah, that, corresponds to my experience. But Lord, I know there are people here today that are struggling through prolonged suffering. They are feeling under attack. They're under accusation. They feel doubts. Oh God, I pray that today that the Holy Spirit would move in their hearts and that they would turn to you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name.